0: Before we get to the sermon, you know that that passage in verse 10 is so often misread because it's so familiar to us. I've misread it for years. Do You notice the preposition in the last verse, For I tell you, there is, so there is joy, what? Before the angels of God. So often we read that and think it's the angels who are rejoicing. But the text says that the joy is happening in front of, before them. Who's rejoicing? Who's happy? Who's celebrating the return of a sinner? God. So often we are the people who come with long frowns, weighted shoulders, drudging through life, acting as if, you know, we're so miserable. It would be helpful, I think, for us on a daily basis to look at, in our mind's eye and our spirit's eye, look if we can, through prayer and the word, at the throne room of heaven. There's no burden there. There's no ha- heaviness there. There's no gnashing of teeth. There's no wringing of hands. There's no. Never in the Bible is God shown to be worried or concerned. But everywhere in the Bible, He is shown to be happy. And the Old Testament prophet says, singing and dancing. And in our passage celebrating the return of sinners before His holy angels. I tell you, there is more joy in heaven from God over the return of one lost sinner than over the 99 who were never lost. It's a beautiful statement from Jesus. And we would do well as evangelicals in this day to re re-grab hold of that joy of God. Enjoy God. Don't grit your teeth and bear God. Don't struggle along white knuckling it, hoping you know you can just hang on till it's the end comes. Let's rejoice in God. Let's be happy before God. This is uh, this is the call, you know, of of really the entire new covenant, and it's really the call of the writer or the pastor of preaching the sermon to the Christians, the Hebrew Christians. In um, as, as as I've said, you know, we don't really know who wrote it. Uh, I gave a a guess. Um, And we don't really know who it's written to, but I gave a guess at that also. And if you weren't here, my my assumption or my belief after study is that Apollos wrote it or preached it first, and it was recorded and sent to Hebrew Christians in Rome. Um, And so, regardless of whether it was sent by Apollos or someone else, or regardless of whether it was sent to Rome or to another region, it was sent to Christians in the church who were struggling, and their struggle was becoming increased. They were facing more and more and more suffering and persecution. And he's going to say later, you've resisted, but not to the point of shedding blood. In other words, he leaves the door open that that's coming. You haven't done it yet, but expect that in the coming days. And then he beckons them to go outside the camp and identify with Jesus rather than identifying with the establishment of the Jewish religion of their day. Don't go back, he's saying to them. He's warning them. We've come now to the first warning passage in the letter to the Hebrews. The very first of five warning passages. And uh, this first of the five is a specific warning to those in the church dealing with the temptation toward apostasy. There is a temptation for those inside the church to turn away from their faith to walk away. Apostasy can be defined as falling away from the faith. Or we might say it's the act of renouncing a previously professed belief. You've said, I am a Christian. I hold to the gospel. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then at a later time, you walk away from that profession and you return to the world. It's It's clear in the New Testament that this was happening early in church history. This is happening in the day of the apostles. It's not like it started in 2000. You know, or at the turn of the 19th century. Or the 20th century. It happened from the very beginning. We see that there are those inside the church gathering for worship on a regular basis who are not part of the church. The They're part of the outward church, but not the inward church. Not the real universal church. John famously warned about these people. He says, in a paraphrase, They went out from us, they left our congregation, because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. And Paul warns the Ephesus elders, in his last address to them, that there would be those who would come up from within them, who wore sheep's clothing but we were inwardly ravenous wolves that would seek to destroy the flock. And he's warning these elders, you as shepherds, you as overseers, your job, your function, one of your main goals is to find these deceptive apostate teachers and move them out of the congregation, discipline them out of the congregation so they don't harm the sheep. But today I want to spend time focused in our text Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Not so much on apostate teachers. Oh, that's the fun one. You know, we can stand in the pulpit and we can rail against teachers who we assume are not among us. That's easy to do. We don't know them. They live cities away most of the time or across the interstate or wherever. And we just get in our pulpit and hammer on them, you know. And they're, they're nowhere to be found. I don't want us to focus on apostate teachers Although, if you're an apostate teacher, I hope to find you out. But that's not really the focus for all of us. I'm really not talking about your high school buddy, who, when you were going to youth group, got baptized with you, and then now he's off in the world somewhere living like an atheist. He's denied his faith. He's walked away. That's really not who I want to focus on today. And I don't think that's who this text is wanting to focus on. I want us to focus on ourselves. Now, listen, I know. It's it's clear, you know. Some of you are saying, just as I said that, well, this is not really for me. I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm a real Christian. There's no way I would ever apostatize. I would never walk away. And my conjecture to you would be that's the same response our pastor probably heard from his congregation preacher must be on somebody else today. He's not talking to me. And I want to say to you, if that was your first thought, you more than anyone need to listen to the warning of this passage. If you have become so haughty and arrogant that you believe it is impossible that you are a phony, then I would contend with you that you have stopped wrestling with your salvation you have possibly let go before the dawn your hip is not broken yet we must wrestle with the truths of the gospel we must wrestle with them I'm not talking about that as if you're wrestling because you necessarily doubt but we must constantly hold the gospel before our eyes, the truth of God's word before our eyes, to examine, I let it examine us, me first, and then my family, and then the church I'm a part of, the community of faith I'm a part of. Before we ever look outside those realms to the outside world, we must start with ourselves, and that's what the pastor here wants us to do. Our evangelical churches are awash with false teaching of easy grace, or also known, if you grew up in the 70s, easy believism. It, it's, a, it's a really insidious thing. It started um, really in the early uh, 1900s uh, in this country. It was around before then, but it was kind of put down in writing formally in this country in C.I. Schofield's study Bible. He spoke of three categories of people in the world. One was the lost man. Secondly, was the spiritual man. And third was the carnal Christian. And this was picked up, this teaching was picked up by others. Lewis Spurris Schaefer uh, picked this teaching up, although he is a great pastor and a very good teacher and very respected by me and others. This he misunderstood. And he began to teach it in such a way that his students at Dallas began to go further than he went. And then there was a man by the name of Zane Hodge, a professor there of the New Testament, who began to teach that you and I could bow our knee and say the sinner's prayer, knowing full well that we did not believe what we were praying. And because we prayed that prayer, God was bound to save us. Then we could go on our merry way. We can live however we want to live. God's bound to save anyone who prays the prayer. Now, he would then say, so we don't slander him, most people that pray that prayer eventually become under the lordship of Jesus. This false teaching uh, brought about uh, the gospel according to Jesus, written by John MacArthur, who was friends with many in this Uh, school and they began to go that way and he saw the slide of the church and he began to warn them much like our pastor is warning that is not true that's not what the gospel is that's not how the New Testament presents true faith the New Testament only shows us two types of people in the world lost and saved that's the two categories that we fall under here There are those who are lost men, rebels against God's will, enemies of God. And then there are saved men, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, submitted under the Lordship of Christ, actively pursuing, sometimes harder than others admittedly, some struggling more than others struggle at this moment in season, but all struggling, fighting, running the race to become more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. All Christians are doing this, the Scriptures teach us. They are are children of God. That's the way that we are called here. Our passage this morning is warning every one of us that we need not fall prey to apostasy. Let's read the text together. Therefore, one of those famous words in the Bible, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So our preacher has spent the first chapter of his sermon, the first part of his letter, saying that God has been speaking from the beginning. Remember, in verse 1, long ago, in various ways, at various times, God spoke to our fathers by who? The prophets. So God's been speaking since the very beginning. Truly, since Genesis 1.1, God began speaking, and He has not ceased to speak until our day. And He won't cease to speak. Throughout all of eternity. God is speaking. And then he goes on to say, that speech, as great as it was from the prophets, doesn't compare to the word we have now received. The word we have now received through Jesus Christ. God's final revelation of Himself is in His Son, and it is supreme to all past revelation. And this revelation is an anchor for our soul during the day of persecution that causes our faith to persevere. That's really the theme of not only chapter 1, but of all of the book of of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is an exhortation. Don't, Don't misunderstand. What we're looking at today, you may not like it when we get into it, but this is what the book of Hebrews is about. These five exhortations. In, in Hebrews 13, verse 22, the, the pastor says, Bear with my exhortation. This is truly an exhortation to hang on, to continue to believe. What are we to believe in? Well, he says, We are to believe in Jesus, who is the Son. He's the creator and the sustainer of the world, He's the exact imprint of God's being, the radiance of God's glory. And He is the substitutionary, atoning sacrifice which has propitiated the wrath of God against His children. And now, He has sat down at the right hand of the Father and He is ruling and reigning there until the consummation of the kingdom when it will appear when He comes. He's already ruling and reigning and then it will be consummated when He comes. And he will bring with him not only the angels, but he will bring with him all those who have gone to sleep or died with faith. And he will bring them and he will resurrect their bodies. And all of his enemies will be as a footstool under his feet. He will crush all oppression. He will end all resistance. He will finally submit all people everywhere. The pastor says then, worship him. Don't worship angels. Don't worship prophets. Don't worship other alternatives. Worship Jesus Christ. The last ten verses or so of chapter 4 are, are one long string of quotes, mainly from the Psalms. Also 2 Samuel seven fourteen, Deuteronomy 32, 43 are quoted. But mainly the Psalms. And they are the enthronement Psalms which he is gathering up to make the point that Jesus is ruling and reigning. And now... We come to the end and He says of chapter 4, He is greater than the ministering spirits because they are here to serve you and He was here to save you. He's greater than the angels. And that catches us to where we are today. In chapter 2, verse 1. And so I want to make three quick observations, points with you, with some sub-points to help us understand and flesh this out. First of all, we see in this text... We must give ourselves to what we have heard in the gospel. We must give ourselves to what we have heard in the gospel or else we will drift away. It's not that we will maybe drift away. If you're not on attention to what you have heard taught in the gospel, it is definitely going to happen. You will drift away. So let's let's think about that statement. That's a big statement. It comes from verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Al Moeller was preaching on this text, and he said in the chapel at Southern, and he said, I had a second grade teacher who would constantly carry a yardstick around, and she would slap her thigh at the same time that she said, Children, listen. He said, He's never said that, like, listen to me when he's preaching because of that. It's like left scars on him. He was a guy who loved education, wanted to be at school. Uh, It was sad that in kindergarten, he didn't get to go to kindergarten, went to first grade. He's a brilliant man, by the way. He goes, first day comes home, mom says, well, Al, how did it go? And he said, I'm not going back. And they said, why? He said, because I haven't learned to read yet. It was the first day of first grade. He wanted to learn to read. It's time to get moving with this education thing. By the second grade... He had decided, I don't want to go back again. First day of second grade, she says the same thing. How did he go? And he says, I don't want to go back. And she thinks, well, he knows how to read. What's going on now? Well, she's got this yardstick, mama, and she whacks us with it and says, listen, listen. But that's exactly what our pastor is doing. Gently, forcefully, very forcefully whacking us to say, and whacking his first audience to say, Therefore, based on the ground of doctrine that I've taught you already in the first chapter, listen to what I'm saying to you. If you don't hold on to the gospel, if you don't anchor your life in the bedrock, sure foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ, you will drift into apostasy. It's not you might do it. You will do it. Therefore, this word points us back up into the text, and then it draws us into pay much closer attention to what you have heard. Let me just say this the the terms here that are translated must pay much closer attention and drift away are nautical terms. Now, I know they don't look that way to us, and the Jewish people were not sailors. Which tells us, again, another clue. These are Hellenists that he's writing to because the Greeks were a sailing people. The Jews were a land people. It's it's kind of a quip, but the rabbi once was asked, Rabbi, why don't we sail? He says, because we are people of the promised land. Not the promised sea. That was said in the rabbinical school supposedly. I wasn't there, believe it or not. But... They weren't a sailing people, so we know here's another clue that these are Greeks. Hebrew people, Jewish descent, but growing up in a Greek culture, they know about sailing. And so what we have are two nautical terms not used a lot in the the New Testament very much at all. What they mean is this. When you're starting out on a journey and you're setting sail into the open sea, if you're off, if you've drifted just a little from course, you may not even recognize it. Do you know that? Very often, when you're out there on the open sea and there's no sight line to look at an island and say, "Okay, I know what that island is," that's how I can adjust my position to that. If you just set out without being on course, before you get to Africa across the Atlantic Ocean, you may end up in Antarctica, right? And and you may think all the while, "We're getting closer. We got to be coming in into port here before long." Many sailors in the ancient world died on their journeys when they lost course and did not realize that they had lost course. You could just sail on and on back then and never reach a land, starve to death, go without water. What he's saying to them is, this is what happens. If you don't have someone paying attention, if you yourself are not paying attention, you will drift off course and it's not necessarily that you're going to see it. It doesn't often happen like that, does it? It just incrementally drifts until one day you're so far away you can't find it. I think about the carnival fantasy right now. It's headed toward Nassau, Bahama with two of my most prized possessions on it. Somebody better have a read on where they're headed. Right? Precious cargo is aboard. I expect it back on Thursday. Right? I mean, if your loved one was getting on a boat, wouldn't you want to say to them, how many years experience do you have, Captain? Let's make certain that we have this thing right. We understand how to use these instruments and get where we're headed. Therefore, someone must be, you must be paying attention to what you've already heard. And in that, you have your second word. Your first is that, you're, that you've got to uh, pay close attention The second word in this text, or thought in this text, is to what you have heard. What was it that the Hebrew Christians had heard? They had heard the truth of the gospel. Now this is where I want to speak to the children. Children, listen to me. Pay attention. You already at a young age have heard so many times the truth of the gospel. Your daddies and mothers teach you at home. The pastors of this church teach you. Your Sunday school teachers are teaching you. You need to pay attention. You need to not only hear it, but you need to hear in your inner man what you are being told. If you don't, you will drift away. One of the biggest concerns I have for our body is... That our children grow up in such an environment that they assume the faith. If we're not careful, they'll just, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, because that's what, that's what we are. We're Christians. And you ask them questions. You think, I'm going to question them to see if they understand the gospel. You start asking questions. Guess what? The children here know the answers. They give you, they spout the answers. But if they don't hear it, Children, if you don't really hear it, not just with these ears, but with the ears of your inner man, if you don't hear it, if you don't plead with God to send His Spirit to you, that you might hear it and then own it, you will wake up one day, I'm afraid, drifted way off course. And it not only happens to little kids, does it? It happens to mommies and daddies, too. You think. Well, it doesn't really hurt to listen to this pastor a few times, but you know he's an infamous other gospel guy. You think I kind of like him. He's entertaining. he, He tells good jokes. And you let his teaching come into your heart and into your mind. And you don't pay attention to what you've heard. You don't judge all things by the truth of the gospel. And you begin to take in bad teaching. And that Course correction isn't made, and you just keep going, sailing what you think is the right direction into the wrong direction. So many of us are in danger of this. I want everyone to realize that not only are we to pay attention to what we have heard, but this idea of drifting is universal. The drift in our life occurs, our lives will drift away from the truth of the gospel unless we pay close attention. That's what the verse says. Isn't it? We must pay much closer attention, why? Lest we drift away from it. What? What we've heard, the gospel. We have to pay attention. Your life can drift into one of at least one of two ways. Your life can drift into legalism. Now, this is the one that particularly strikes people like us. Our stripe, our kind, okay? You know, it's just a simple step from Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That song is filled with gospel truth. Jesus did everything necessary to pay for our sins. And it's a simple step from there to, yeah, but, He did, but, you know, we, we, we also need to Keep the law. We need to keep the law. What law? God's law. We got to keep it. We got to make sure that we do everything according to it. Well, what what things? All of them. We need to circumcise our children. We need to wear our hair a certain length. We need to not wear mixed fabric. We need to not eat meat offered to idols. We We need to keep the code. How do I know it's easy to make that step? Because many in our writer's day were making the step. As a matter of fact, I think some in this congregation are thinking, you know, it would be easier just to go back to the synagogue and live the way Jewish religious people live. And he's saying to them, your life is drifting if you do that. Pay attention to what you've heard. They tried to make that the case in Paul's life, right? With Timothy. Circumcising Paul. And require all of the Gentiles to be circumcised. And Paul said no. And then he had to go talk to the church council. And they approved his gospel. And he went out from them preaching the truth of the gospel. Why? Because if they had added circumcision to the truth that Jesus paid it all, they would be drifting. They would be walking away. Into a stricter, into a stricter teaching than the gospel. Grace is too gracie. It's too free. It's too loosey-goosey. People are going to start living sinful lives if you preach this way, Paul. You've got to add some regulations. Paul said, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll run the risk, right? This is the truth. We will preach in such a way that men will be set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live in Christ. And we will trust that His Spirit will safely guide them in that way. But you can also drift into liberalism. Now, this one's not as often the case in our churches, but it's the case in many churches, isn't it? Well, you know, what's the big deal that we focus rather on curing AIDS than preaching the gospel? AIDS is a serious issue in our world. We need to be preaching about that and teaching about that and getting people mobilized in that. What's the big deal if we uh, focus on the fact that, that God... Loves all people. I mean, God does love all people, right? Let's just focus on that. Let's don't talk about judgment, hell, sin. Let's just leave those out. We'll just teach about God's love. Heaven wins, love wins. And we drift ever so slightly. One of my missionary heroes is Don Richardson. And I taught a lesson over in Sunday school several months ago now and talked about his life. He's the man who went to a tribe in Papua New Guinea, actually Indonesia, uh, New Guinea, uh, the Indonesian side, <clears throat> and, and did the peace child. You know, he went in, he moves in among the people, and the tribe is violent, and they're killing everyone, and he finds this ritual where they would offer a child to the other tribe as an offer of peace, as long as that child lived, they lived in peace together, and he found that ceremony, and he connected it back to Jesus and the offer of the gospel, and the, the, uh, the Sawi people were converted in mass. And I mean, it's just a beautiful story, but you know today that Don Richardson believes people are saved without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believes now that people are saved in their native religions. And that they can come to Christ in other alternate ways. Preferably Jesus, but not necessarily having to know that it's Jesus. It's called inclusivism. He's drifted. He's drifted. If it can happen to Don Richardson, listen to me. A man who gave his life to the cause of preaching the gospel among headhunters. If it can happen to him... Don't kid yourself sitting in this pew in the comfort of the United States that it can't happen to you. It can happen. How? You don't pay attention to the gospel. That means every article of it. The pure, unadulterated truth that we are absolutely born cut off from God by our sin. We don't have to do anything to displease God. We are born displeasing. And we act on that birth by rebellion against the living God. And we would go that way undeterred and unchanged except God, who is rich in mercy and He loved us, sent His Son to put on flesh and do what we could not do. He lived perfectly according to the law blameless and then he offered his perfect sinless life in our place he was condemned he was beaten he was wrongly convicted and he was crucified he died and was buried and on the third day raised from the dead and he walked and talked with over 500 witnesses for 40 days and ascended to the right hand of the father where he is seated now ruling and reigning and pouring out his spirit on the church. And he will come again. If you drift from this, in the least bit, your life is in danger of apostasy. So we're being told, based on the theology we've already heard, that our propensity is to drift away. And let me tell you, you will never drift towards orthodoxy. If you begin to kick it into neutral and you've run hard and you're tired and you say, I'm just going to take a break. I'm not I'm going to take a break from this Christian stuff. I'm just going to kind of live my life. You will immediately begin to drift, not towards the truth, but away from it. No one ever woke up one day and said, you know what? Strange, I hadn't really done anything, but I kind of feel closer to God. And two weeks later, he wakes up and says, I don't know what's happened to me. I've started doing all these, you know, things that look a lot like Jesus. What's going on in my life? I must be drifting towards Jesus. Nobody, not one person in all of world history has ever drifted that way. You drift the other way. You will either put your foot in the ground and drive and strive to walk with your Lord every day. Or you will drift away. Therefore, let us pay much closer attention to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That's the warning. Second, God gave just retribution to those who rejected His word at Mount Sinai. Now, He gives an example of what God does to those who drift away. Verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... God delivered the law at Mount Sinai through the ministry of angels, and the law is true. That's, that's basically what he's saying here at the beginning of verse 2. Now you may say, now wait a minute, where do we know, how do we know that God gave the law to Moses through angels? Well, it's not at Exodus 19 and 20, but later in Deuteronomy 33, 2, when, when Moses is near to death and is giving his last charge to the people of Israel. He says, God, who came to us at Sinai, and then from Sinai to Paran, came to us in the tens of thousands of His angels. That was His blessing to them. That God came to Him, or to them, through the angels. So what we know happened at Mount Sinai is God's finger wrote the Ten Commandments. And... What, the way that happened was through the ministry of the angels. Acts, I just hold your place here. Acts chapter seven in the New Testament makes this abundantly clear. The message of Stephen, just before he's stoned to death, in Acts seven, verse thirty-eight, he's just recounting the story of the receiving of the law, and he and he says in verse thirty-eight, "This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel." who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And then in verse 53, he says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So here, Stephen makes it abundantly clear the angels dispersed the law. Paul does it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, as a way for Paul to show that the promise to Abraham is supreme. The the promised Abraham was delivered by who? From God directly to Abraham. But the but the law came then. And so did the law change the promised Abraham? No, the law couldn't change the promised Abraham. Well then what he does in verse 19 is shows that the angels gave the promise The the angels gave the law to Moses. The promise was given directly from God to Abraham, but the law was mediated through angels. Why then the law, verse 19? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the law was delivered by the angels. And our pastor here who has said, listen, you've got to pay close attention to what you've heard. The gospel. If you don't, you will drift away. Now, he immediately goes to an example, the example of the old covenant, and says, listen, they received an old covenant, and that old covenant came through angels to them. And it was reliable. The law is not less valid because it came through angels. As truly, every word an angel has ever spoken is true. Because they are the holy angels, and they come from God with messages for His people. So it's not that the law was less True. It was true. But what he's setting up is a lesser and greater comparison. He's saying, listen, if God didn't spare those who drifted away from the law that was delivered by angels, he's going to ask the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's going to the greater. He's saying, this is great. The law is great. It was delivered by angels. It should have been obeyed, but people didn't obey. They drifted away and they received their just retribution. So how will you escape if you neglect the salvation He delivered to you by His Son? He's building an argument. It's a legal defense, really, is what it is. Valid, the word reliable in the, in the ESV. Valid in verse 2. The word just in verse 2. If you look down, and, uh, and every transgression or disobedience received a just Retribution, that that word just, declared to us in verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. That declared to us and adding His witness in verse 4. While God also bore witness or added His witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. All of those terms, valid, just, um, added His witness to, declared to us. All of those are legal terms. They're like in a courtroom. This is a valid and acceptable. This is just punishment. This is the testimony of Jesus and this is the testimony of God. That's the way he's talking in this passage. He's saying in this legal way that you have an example. Those who transgressed or disobeyed the law. And we know they did disobey the law, right? I mean, they didn't hardly get away from Sinai. They were sitting in camp making golden calves and statutes. I mean, they hadn't even received the law yet, and they're already disobeying the law. And they didn't go much further than that. They began to grumble and complain, want to elect a leader, go back to Egypt, because at least they could eat there. They act like it's Club Med in Egypt. I mean, they're in there making bricks without straw, and now they're acting like, boy, we had it so easy over in Egypt. This is awful. You know? They turned away. They drifted away from the truth of the law. And it was delivered to them by angels. I mean, they had stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and seen the smoke descend and the lightnings and the flashing, the rumblings, the trumpet, the angels, the glory, and Moses in the cloud. They had seen all of that. They had heard the warning of God. If you come on this mountain while I'm here, I will kill you. I mean, this is powerful stuff. And yet they don't even get away from the foot of the mountain without saying, you know, let's make a golden calf and go back to Egypt. That's how quickly drift takes place in your life. That's what the writers say. You've got to pay attention or you'll do just what they did. You'll drift away. And they received a just retribution. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was having a discussion with, some, with a young guy, a student at JSU, and he was saying, you know, I just don't get into this uh, Christianity thing. I said, really, why not? He said, well, the guy's just so unjust. I said, my ears perk up. You know, it's like, that's a bold statement. Why is he unjust? Well, he—I mean—he has people killed all the time in the Old Testament. I mean, for simple little things, like what simple little things? Well, like disobeying your parents. Yeah. I read a story about a guy somewhere over there who was just picking up wood and got killed. And that's true. Yep. Yeah. What's unjust about that? That's not fair. If they were doing a lot worse things. I, I said, what's unjust about it? You said God's unjust. I want to know what's unjust. What's well, just not right? In whose terms? God said, you shall obey your father and your mother, for this is right. I mean, this, this is what you should do. God said, don't pick up sticks on the Sabbath. He literally did. Don't, don't even go out and pick up wood. And put it on a fire. Cook your food on Friday night. Saturday, eat the leftovers. Right? And all the women said, amen. Wow. <laughs> right? I mean, but this guy, he just went out. He, he forgot. I'm sure he just had some money. He went out alongside the road and thought, it'll be all right. I'll just pick these up. And they brought him before Moses. Moses went to God, and God said, kill him. Stone him. Why? Because picking up sticks is such an awful thing? No, because disobedience to God and transgression of His law is worthy of death. I deserve to die. You deserve to die. God is not unjust. And He gave just punishment, retribution for sin. In the Old Covenant. Delivered to them by God through angels on Mount Sinai. Now if they did not escape. How will we escape now that he's delivered the word to us through his son? Do you see why he's warning so strongly? Don't fall asleep at the wheel. You will drift off course and you will die. You will shipwreck your life. You will bust hell wide open. Don't do it. Third, we will not escape if we reject this great salvation. Declared to us by Christ, continued through the apostles, and confirmed by the wonders of God. Now quickly, I want to move to a close here in this end. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That question just begs the answer, we won't get out. We won't escape. We will die. It was declared at first by the Lord, and then attested to us by His Men, by those after him, who saw him and heard him, the apostles. Which is, by the way, why I gave you this earlier, but that's why I believe this wasn't Paul. Paul received his gospel from the Lord. This person received it from those who heard it from the Lord. This is a second generation guy, right? That's what I believe. While God also bore witness. How did God bear witness? By signs. Wonders. That's the exact way that the the miracles at Sinai and of Egypt were described. God through signs and wonders attested to them the truth of the law by these miraculous things. People saw miraculous signs. The water was turned to blood. Frogs hopped all over the place. Flies moved in. Locusts ate everything. The Red Sea stood up on its end and they walked across on dry land and the greatest army of the world was destroyed at the bottom of it. This is a sign and a wonder that what I'm telling you is true. And miracles. Various miracles. The apostles worked miracles. Like what? Well, like people fell out of windows and died during long sermons and then Paul laid over the top of him and he lived. If you die while I'm preaching, we're calling to the yard. EMTs, better show up quick, right? I can't save you. But God detested to the miraculous, through the miraculous, the truthfulness of the gospel. When they preached, people were saved. At Acts chapter 2, the whole congregation heard the apostles and the disciples in the upper room speaking in tongues of other languages, right? These signs and wonders. People... We're laying, laying at the gate of the temple. And Peter and John walk by and they say, give me some silver and gold. And they say, silver and gold have we none. But what we have we give to you. By the power of Jesus, stand and walk. They lift him up, he walks. I can't do that. You can't do that. Why? Because the purpose of that was to show the truthfulness of the gospel. There's a cluster in Acts of great miracles, signs, and wonders which were done to show this is the truth. Believe it. Testifying, God was testifying on their behalf that they were speaking the truth. Salvation through the gospel has been witnessed to us, and it has been witnessed through the power of Jesus, the, the preaching of the apostles, and the signs, wonders, and miracles of God. And so I come to a close. My uh, first experience of someone who had drifted, I was 21 years old, almost 22. I was sitting in the uh, advisor's office, I've told this before, the advisor's office in the history department at West Alabama with my senior thesis, and I had passed by all miracles. I had gotten out. And the professor, the head of the department, was pleading with me to go into history professionally. And he was saying, you know. You're gifted. You can do this. This can be the first of many presentations you make at a college level. If you, if you just give yourself to it, I'll write your recommendations. I'll talk to your other professors. We'll get you in the best of schools. You can do this. Pressing, pressing, press. and every time he pressed, I'd say, "Sir, I, I really respect you, but I love and I love history, but." My call is to go into gospel ministry. He finally got so mad. Red face, I'll never forget. He slammed his hand down on the desk. He said, you're throwing away a good God-given brain. Okay. Maybe he thought throwing God in would convince me. And slamming the hand, you know. And I said, well, I don't agree. I, I, I believe I'm doing what's the best thing I can do. I'm obeying what I believe God's called me to do. And I never will forget... He just went blank and he said, when I was a kid, I went to the Presbyterian church and I, was, I went through confirmation. I went through the catechism. I stood in front of the church and was presented as a believer. And I want to tell you, there's never been a bigger, bigger fairy tale than what was put on me as a child. There's not one stitch of truth in all of that word. I was shocked. I had grown up in a church where people had left and stopped going to church, but I'd never eye-to-eye eyeballed somebody who was determined they would test God and see, is there a hell? I I started trying to preach the gospel to him, and he just put his hand up like this. He said, I'll tell you this. If you're right, and I'm wrong, when you get out of here, leave me a suit of asbestos. If Flipped my paper across the table and said, Have good luck. And I walked out. Now I tell you that to, to say this. He started in church. He understood the catechism. Well enough that a group of men laid their hands on him and presented him to a congregation as a believer. What had happened? He didn't pay attention. And over time, he drifted. And then he was hardened in his unbelief. He died in a car wreck just a few years ago, drunk. It can happen to you. Just as sure as it happened to him. You say, but I thought we believed him once saved, always saved. No, we do not. We do not believe that. That that is a lie. What? Yes. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. What's the difference? The difference is those who are saved continue in the faith. The proof is in the pudding. The final word is written on your headstone. Until then, you wrestle with your salvation. You work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You never let go of the wheel and just say, I'm in. It's all good. I'll live how I want. You fight the good fight. You run the course. You finish the race. That's what we believe. And if you don't, then we will say, have to say, that person went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have persevered to the end, but they didn't because they weren't of us. The final words, never spoken until death. Keep running the race. That's the warning here. And just as we close, as we head into the other sermons and the warning passages, I want to recommend to you a work by Tom Schreiner, who's my professor at Louisville. And um, he wrote a book on the warning passage of Hebrews. Because too many Christians think these are theoretical. They don't really, it doesn't really happen. You know, you don't really lose your faith. And Tom says, absolutely that's not the case. These are warning signs on the on the road to apostasy. And they're held up in front of people who go to church every week in that day. And they're warning signs that say, turn around, you're gonna die. And believers turn around. So if without the warning sign, you'd go off the cliff. But with the warning sign, God's designed them to bring you back. They are real, true warnings of real, true possibilities. They're not theoretical. They're not pretend. And they're not for lost people. They're for saved people. Okay? Tom Schreiner, I think the title he settled on was Running, uh, running to Win. I can get you that in an email this week. But Tom Schreiner, you can look him up. Let's end our time in prayer. Thinking about this warning in our own lives. Are you running the course? Are you still paying attention to the gospel? As Luther says, are you preaching the gospel to yourself daily? This is really the charge that I want to leave you with. That you preach the gospel to yourself and to your children and to your wife or husband and to those around you every day, that you never lose a grip on the truthfulness.